Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Both 1 Timothy chapter 4 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 indicate that prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ, there will be a significant falling away or apostasy of professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that we see hints of that even in our day, indicating that we are quickly approaching the second coming of the Savior. In that light, there was a 2019 article by the Pew Research Council titled, In the United States, Decline of Christianity Continues at a Rapid Pace. And the article's statistics were somewhat alarming. That article revealed a 12% decline between the years 2009 and 2019, that decade, a 12% decline of people in America that described themselves as Christian. And it revealed a 7% drop in regular church attendance among those who still maintained the Christian label. Certainly we see the beginnings, at least in our day, of an apostasy or a falling away, a cooling of devotion to Christ, as Jesus predicts in the 24th chapter of Matthew, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. In the past few years even, the secular media has been all too happy to publicize the stories of several prominent evangelical Christians who have publicly renounced and repudiated their faith. In 2017, Hank Hintergraff, the president of the Christian Research Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina, and popular radio personality on the apologetics show titled The Bible Answer Man, left his affiliation with the Southern Baptist Convention to the glee again of many secular critics of Christianity and to the disillusionment of many who found his ministry to be quite profitable in years past self-included. In the year 2019, Joshua Harris, popular Christian author and influencer of young people concerning the subject of courtship versus dating, and also a pastor in a traditional Christian setting, announced that he was no longer a Christian. And again, the media was glad to report this. In the year 2020, Mark Galley, the senior editor of Christianity Today magazine, a magazine that was founded by Billy Graham, 
recanted his faith and publicly announced that he was no longer a follower of Jesus Christ. And then just a few months ago in April of 2021, Paul Maxwell, a former professor at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and an evangelical author, also joined the ranks of publicly renouncing his Christian profession. Now backsliding is not a new phenomenon in the modern world. In fact, that was one of the issues that troubled the saints in the first century and that gave rise to the inspiration of the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit to write the book of Hebrews. You may remember, as we've noted several times in our study in this book, the background behind the book of the Hebrews. This was a group of first century Jewish Christians. These were Hebrews or Jews that had converted to Christianity and they still lived in a predominantly Jewish environment and because of that they were receiving tremendous pressure. Their friends and co-workers and family members saw them as Benedict Arnold's traitors because they had left the synagogue for the church. They had abandoned Saturday Sabbath for the Lord's Day or the first day of the week together with the Christians. And they believed that the promised Messiah that the Jews were looking for had come and his name was Jesus of Nazareth. He was the Christ. They had professed faith in him. But because of that, they were suffering persecution. And this letter of Hebrews is penned for the sake of encouraging them to keep going. But it's also a letter that includes five major warning passages. We've already looked at two of them. The first in chapter two, when he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation and let the things slip that we have heard? That's a warning passage. The others in chapter three and chapter four, where he says, take heed brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing that is standing aloof from the living God and lest through unbelief, you fail to enter into his rest. That's a warning passage. And the third of the five is now before us in chapter six, where he warns them against backsliding to the point that they may lose every blessing that is worth having this side of eternal bliss. Now, you know, a faithful pastor will not only encourage God's people, but he will warn them. He's a watchman on the wall. Of course, he's a shepherd to tenderly care for the sheep, but he's also compared in the Bible to a watchman. And a watchman's primary job was to issue warning, watching for a fire to break out in one of the quadrants of the city so that he can sound the alarm before too much damage is done, watching for an enemy army who might be approaching. And the book of Ezekiel tells us that the watchman who fails to issue the warning when he sees danger approaching the blood of the people will be upon his hands. But if he issues the warning and they don't heed the warning, then their blood will be upon their own hands. And so a minister of the gospel and a pastor of a church is supposed to issue some warning. Now he should always speak the truth in love, but he should be very forthright and frank and candid and speak the truth, should he not? And the apostle in this passage issues one of these warnings to the Hebrews, many of whom had already recanted their faith and others who were under such pressure that they were considering leaving the gospel church and returning to Judaism because they said it's just not worth it. 
were suffering too much persecution. My friends, may I suggest that as the second coming of Jesus Christ nears, the persecution of Christians, the New Testament seems to be very clear about this, will once again be an issue that we will have to endure. We can expect that the world, as it becomes increasingly godless and anti-Christian, will stand up against those who name the name of Jesus Christ. And I think that you and I can already see a push in popular culture and the secular society in which we live to try to marginalize those who hold to the biblical worldview. So this passage is very relevant even today. Backsliding is not a new phenomenon. In fact, it was happening among the Hebrews and it no doubt is happening in our day as the examples that I've given you indicate. So we're in this section in which we have a sort of pastoral parentheses. If you remember what we talked about last time, you remember that beginning in chapter 5 verse 10, when Paul mentions Melchizedek again, he then says, I would like to say many things about him, but you're not able to hear and understand them at this point because you're dull of hearing. And he deals with the problem of spiritual immaturity. The Hebrews were simply not growing. Instead of growing, making progress, they were actually digressing and they needed to be taught again the very ABCs, the first principles of the truth of God. And all the way from chapter 5, verse 10 to chapter 6, verse 20, when he mentions Melchizedek again, we have what you might say is a pastoral parenthesis in which the apostle in the midst of his sermon sort of chases a divinely inspired rabbit and challenges these people not to be content with being a spiritual baby and also to be careful about backsliding to the point that they lose the joys of their salvation. So that's our introduction for the morning. Let's come now more specifically to the text that we read in your hearing. And I suggest that there are two basic interpretations of this passage. Uh, actually, we could say there are three. The first one is the idea that he's speaking in hypothetical terms here. If they shall fall away. Verse 6, we're told, is a hypothetical, that it's not even possible. But that seems to be very uncharacteristic of Paul's way of speaking, just to suggest a hypothetical impossibility that's not characteristic of his writing, so I won't even consider that. But other than that, there are two basic interpretations of this passage. We might say the first is an Arminian view, and the second is the Calvinist view. And we use those terms for a reason, because you may know that there are two basic schools of theological thought in Christian history. One is called Arminianism, which is not a pejorative, it's not a critical term, it's simply a label that suggests a certain way of thinking. Arminianism is the idea that, of course, man can earn his own salvation by his works. And Calvinism is the idea, as a rule, that God, in his free grace, grants salvation. And I suggest that I would not label myself either label today. I wouldn't claim either term because the truth really is something else entirely, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But for the sake of argument, most of the religious people who profess Christianity around us today would fall into one of two camps, either Arminian or Calvinist. And the Arminian view of this passage is that they would say this passage teaches that a saved person may lose his salvation. 
listen to it again. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance. So the Arminian says that a saved person, saved today, could be unsaved tomorrow and forfeit his salvation. I suggest if this position is true, here's my argument against that Arminian view. The passage says too much for those that teach a person may fall from grace. Because it says that the person who has fallen cannot be restored. It's impossible to renew him again to repentance. The passage says too much. Because most everyone that teaches that says you might have it today, lose it tomorrow, but then you can get it again the next day and then lose it again. But this passage says once lost, always lost. Doesn't it? It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. The second objection I would raise against the Arminian view is the Bible is very clear about the doctrine of divine preservation of the saints. Or if you please, the doctrine of eternal security. Once saved, always saved. The Bible's very clear about that. For instance, John chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Now what does that last clause in John 10, 29 mean? They shall never perish. You may be interested to know that the word never is a double negative, and it means never, no never. Interestingly, the hymn writer in that wonderful old hymn, How Firm a Foundation, picks up that double negative thought in the last verse when he says, The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Somebody says, well, the hymn writer just ran out of words. He had to find enough syllables to fit the meter of the song, so he just repeated that phrase, no never, no never, no never. But I say that's a biblical repetition. For they shall never, no never perish. Lest you have any doubt, there's not a possibility that any that belong to the Lord will lose their saved status, will lose their position in grace. They are preserved. In fact, the Bible actually uses that word preserved in Jude verse 1. Jude, a servant of God and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ and called. He means, my friends, that they're kept. They're preserved. Then verse 24 of Jude says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, unto him be glory forever and ever. Amen. May I say God is able to keep you from falling. The psalmist said it like this in the 89th Psalm. If his children forsake my law, that's you and me, and walk not in my statutes, I will visit their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. God will chasten for our disobedience. But I dare say that doesn't change your covenant relationship with God. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, that is my covenant faithfulness, I will not utterly take from Christ, from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. For once I have sworn in my holiness, I will not lie 
unto David. You see, our eternal hope, my beloved, is based on a God who cannot lie. Titus 1, 2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Jesus accomplished salvation, and may I say that every heir of grace is safe in his love. You are eternally secure. The devil can't reach you. He may harm your testimony. He may ruin your peace and joy in this life, but he can never snatch from any of God's people what Christ has purchased for us on the cross. Nothing can separate the elect from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't you love that passage? In Romans chapter 8, I am persuaded, says Paul. He didn't say that I'm hoping this might be the case, but he says I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Colossians 3 verse 4 says, You are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. You ever seen one of those old-fashioned toys? And they'd have a barrel on the outside, and then another barrel on the inside, then another barrel on the inside of that, you know, smaller and smaller. As you open them, you'd keep opening, and finally you'd find a little prize in the inside one. I think of those barrels whenever I read this verse. You are dead, your life is hid with Christ in God. To get to one of God's sheep, the enemy, the predator, the devil would have to come through God the Father, and then through God the Son, you'd have to defeat both the Father and the Son to get to you or to me. So the Bible teaches eternal security. It teaches that those that Jesus saved on the cross will stay in that saved condition. And nothing can ever change that. That's the main reason I object to the Arminian explanation of this passage when they say that this passage teaches that a saved person may be saved today and lost tomorrow. You cannot lose your relationship. The prodigal son was still his father's son when he was in the hog pen, just as much as he was when he was home in the parlor. That relationship was still intact. Now, the fellowship had been broken. And I dare say, dear friends, that that's one of the important things to understand, the difference between relationship and fellowship between sonship and discipleship. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Secondly, the Calvinist view of this passage. And when I use the word Calvinist, I'm speaking of Reformed theology as a rule. The uh, Protestant Reformation ideas of Luther and Calvin. And the Calvinist theology says that this passage describes people who just gave the appearance of being God's children, but they were never truly born again. These people fooled others to make them think that they were saved, but truly they were just professors and not possessors of eternal life. Well, my argument against the Calvinist view of this passage is that, again, the passage says too much. In lieu of the doctrine of total depravity, for the spurious believer view that this is just describing spurious believers, it says too much. For notice, if these are just religious pretenders, if they're not truly God's children, but they're just giving the impression that they are, if they're just professors, but not true possessors of spiritual life, then how does the description of them in verses 4 and 5 square with the doctrine of total depravity? You see, so many people forget the doctrine of total depravity. 
That's why I maintain that it's the most important of the five doctrines of grace. What are the five doctrines of grace? Well, you can remember them by remembering the acronym TULIP. T stands for total depravity. U for unconditional election. L for limited atonement. I for irresistible grace. P for the preservation of the saints. And of those five, which one is the most important? If I were to ask you today, which one is the most crucial? You might say, well, limited atonement is the most crucial, or the preservation of the saints. I suggest the first one, T, total depravity is the most important. The reason is because if you get it wrong there, you're going to get everything else wrong after that. But if you can ever understand that man is in a fallen, irreparable state, he cannot rescue himself by an act of his own will or by his own works. Because he is dead in trespasses and in sins. The Bible uses that imagery on purpose. It doesn't say that man is sick. That he was bruised and mangled by the fall. It says he was ruined and devastated by the fall. The Bible does not teach that man is just handicapped because of what Adam did in the garden. It teaches, my friends, that he's spiritually incapacitated. He cannot come to God unless he's first acted upon and given spiritual life by divine grace. The Bible, my friends, is very clear that because man is alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in him by nature, then salvation must be by grace if anybody is saved at all. Total depravity. If you can ever understand that, my friends, everything else will fall into place. If you ever understand that all of Adam's race is fallen and unable to help themselves and they must be acted upon from an outside source, if you can ever understand that, then an unconditional election won't bother you because had God not elected people, we all would have been left in that fallen condition. Limited atonement won't bother you because if Jesus hadn't died for the sheep and redeemed them, then we would have been left to eternal ruin in our depraved state. Irresistible grace or the preservation of the saints. In fact, this not only will not bother you, but it will be a joyful sound and will be good news to a hungry soul. Blessed are they that know the joyful sound. My friends, do you know what it is to hear and understand and believe the joyful sound of salvation by grace alone? It's because we understand that left to ourselves apart from grace, we're in a corrupt and alienated and depraved condition. So the Calvinist view that says that this passage describes people that are pretenders to spiritual life but are not actual possessors of Christ in their hearts says too much because listen to how it describes these people. And I ask you, is this description consistent with what the rest of the Bible says about the doctrine of total depravity? First of all, they were once enlightened. What does it mean to be enlightened? It means the light has been turned on, right? Is there any light in a depraved sinner, in an unregenerate man? No, the Bible describes him as being darkness itself, Ephesians 5.8. For ye were sometimes darkness. There's no light there. Not in his understanding, not in his mind. His mind is fallen, his will is fallen. He has no grasp of the light of the gospel, but these people were illuminated. In fact, that's the word used a few chapters later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, when he says, called remembrance in that after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. 
He says, I want you to think back to the moment when the light turned on in your mind. You know, I remember the first time I sat on those pews and the preacher was preaching and suddenly it all began to make sense. The light had been turned on and what a happy day that was. Isn't that wonderful when the light turns on? You're not confused anymore. You're not walking around thinking, what is all of this about? But suddenly it starts to fit together. My mother tells a story. She came from another order of people and didn't join the church for several years after she married my dad. She tells the story how that she just couldn't quite grasp what these primitive Baptist preachers were saying until Elder Cecil Darty preached a meeting. He was preaching about Abraham taking Isaac up on top of Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice in obedience to God. And before the knife ever pierced the tender flesh of Abraham's only begotten son, the angel of the Lord stayed his hand. He heard a voice that said, Abraham, Abraham. And you can imagine he was all too glad to look up and to say, what is it? Uh, he was glad for that distraction. And the voice said, do thy son no harm. For now I know that thou fearest God in that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. And at that moment, Abraham looked and he saw a ram caught by his horns in the brush, in the thicket. And he set Isaac free and he took the male lamb and he offered him in the stead of his son Isaac. And my mother says that when Elder Darty preached that, she saw for the first time the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, that he died a vicarious death in the stead of his people. It was you, it was I that deserved to die, my friends, on Calvary's cross. But Jesus Christ took my place and he took your place. And she says the light turned on. I want to ask today, my beloved, has the light ever been turned on in your mind? And does that happen to an unregenerate man before he's given spiritual life? No, because by nature he's dead. And the dead cannot see light. Only the living can see light. And then further he says, not only after you were illuminated or enlightened, he says, you've tasted the heavenly gift. Now I would ask you, is that consistent with the doctrine of total depravity? I'm arguing against the Calvinist view that this passage describes a professor but not a possessor of spiritual life. And I argue on the basis of the fact that it says they've tasted the heavenly gift. Now can the deceased taste anything? Spiritual senses that are described in the Bible. Anytime you read about tasting that the Lord is gracious, 1 Peter 2, 3. You know, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and sight, Psalm 34. Taste and see. Those are two spiritual senses, right? What are your five natural senses? Sight, hearing, taste, smell, touch. Anytime you read about somebody touching the Lord, feeling the moving of the Holy Spirit, tasting the good word of God, as this passage says, seeing the kingdom of God, hearing the joyful sound of the gospel. Anytime you read about people exercising sense perception in the Bible, that's an evidence that they've already been given spiritual life. And when these people tasted the good word of God, they tasted, it says, Hebrews 6 verse 3, have tasted the heavenly gift. Now he's already talked about that heavenly gift back in chapter 3 verse 1. When he says, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. This gift, this effectual call came from heaven. They've tasted the heavenly gift. 
Is that ever true of a, an unregenerate man? No, my friends. And they've tasted the good word of God. Is that ever true of an unregenerate man? No, the dead in sins do not relish the preaching of the gospel. Have you ever tasted the good word of God? Has a preacher ever been preaching up here in this pulpit and you've sat there and just fed on it? You've tasted it. It's been real in your experience. It was something that appealed to your spiritual senses. Has that ever happened to you? That's an evidence you're born again. For 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man, that is man in his native state, before divine grace finds and quickens him, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. That verse teaches it takes a spiritual man to receive and understand spiritual things. For the natural man, before you're born again, the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. So this passage describes people who have a light. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the good word of God. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted the power of the world to come. That is, they have a hope in Jesus Christ. That is, heaven is real to them. This isn't describing a professor of Christian faith, but not a true possessor of spiritual life. It says too much for that. And it further says they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Now the word partakers in this verse is the Greek word koinonia, which means to share in common. And it's translated fellowship and communion elsewhere in the New Testament. They were made partakers. They have communion with the Holy Ghost. Does an unregenerate man ever have fellowship with the Lord? No, my friends, he doesn't care about God. You see, the reason that this passage is not talking about a spurious believer or a pretender to spiritual life is because none of the things that are said here could possibly be true of an unregenerate man in light of Romans 3.10 when it says, There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. By nature, this is the condition of the depraved sinner, it says they are together become unprofitable. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. The poison of asps is under their lips and the way of peace they have not known. Their feet are swift to shed blood. He says they're all guilty before God. That passage is not a diagnosis of a sick man. It's an autopsy of a dead man. Romans 3.10. The Calvinist view that says this passage describes people that were never truly born again I object to it on that premise. So then, Brother Mike, what does it mean? If the Arminian view isn't accurate, or the Calvinist view, the popular views on this passage are not accurate, is there another interpretation? I want to propose a third interpretation. This passage in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning teaches that a born-again believer who turns his back on the light of knowledge that God has given him and repudiates the gospel for his pre-conversion lifestyle, sins presumptuously, and reveals a mindset that apart from God's direct intervention, cannot be convinced to reconsider, repent, and return to the gospel church. This passage speaks of a born-again believer who willfully denies what God has taught him and walks away from it. 
You say, Brother Mike, does such a person lose his salvation? No, I've already told you that those who are God's children cannot lose eternal life. It's important to distinguish between sonship and discipleship when interpreting the Bible. When you come to interpret the Bible, my friends, understand that sometimes it's talking about the children of God, sometimes it's talking about Christians, those who professed faith in Jesus Christ. God has a big family. You believe that? In my father's house are a few little houses here and there. No, many mansions. Every one of God's children will receive the royal treatment in heaven, many mansions, and there are many of them. The family of God is a people out of every nation and kindred and tongue and people. That is, God is chosen from every family, every language, every ethnicity, every political ideology. God has people across this globe and throughout all ages. And he's told Abraham that they're as innumerable as the sands by the sea. That is just as impossible as it is to number the sands by the seashore or the stars in the heavens. That's how impossible it is to number the family of God. He has a big family. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for few? No, for many. And when John hears the redeemed in heaven singing hallelujah, he said, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven like the sound of mighty rushing waters. You know how deafening Niagara Falls is? That pales in insignificance compared to the deafening roar of the redeemed singing hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth on heaven's golden shore. But I wanna ask you, if God has a big family, many children, how many of them are truly living obediently and serving him in this world? Jesus says, straight is the gate, Matthew 7, 13, and narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. Fear not, little flock. Is he talking about the whole family of God in Luke 12, 32? Is he talking about the whole family of God in Matthew 7, 13? Few there be that find it. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be that go in there. He's talking about two ways of living life in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. One way is the way of popular opinion, the way of the world, and there are many on that path. But there are just a few, a remnant, my friends, that are walking the narrow way. I want to be part of that remnant. I want to be part of that few. You say, I want to be popular, Brother Mike. That path leads to destruction. That's the warning of backsliding. I want people to like me. I, I'm getting persecuted for confessing Christ. It's just too high a price to pay. I'm so glad Jesus didn't have that mindset when he went to Calvary on your behalf and mine. It's too high a price to pay. But my friends, may I say, if you've ever seen what he's done for your poor soul, it doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks or where they're going. I want to be found among the few on the narrow way because that way leads to life, does it not? And if you've ever been shown that way and you turn your back on it, my friends, and decide to go with the crowd, he says that reveals a frame of mind that is so far gone that no matter how much other people talk and how much other people try to bring you back, this person has made up his mind. He has a concrete mind, all mixed up and permanently set. <laughs> you know, some people have a concrete mind. 
and they're convinced that they're, no, this is the way I'm going now. And you say, please come back to church. Please come back to your profession of faith. We miss you. We need you. No, they've lost all feeling. And you say, what has happened to this person? They have so strayed, my friends, that unless God directly intervenes in a miraculous way to bring them back, you and I can't convince them to repent. It doesn't say they can't be restored or that the church doesn't have the right to forgive them if they repent. It just says that we can't restore them. God can, can't he? A born-again child of God may give vent to the flesh and may be so concerned about public opinion that he wanders from the way and he refuses to come back. And this passage teaches and it warns us. And these Hebrews needed this warning because they were sliding back. They were not growing, remember? And many of them were starting to wonder if they shouldn't just quit trying to go to church and for the sake of peace, do what everybody else was doing around them. There's a difference between a child of God and a Christian. Somebody says, Brother Mike, I thought you believed that perseverance is a divine guarantee that everyone who's truly saved will persevere in faith and obedience. No, that's not what I said. I believe that preservation is guaranteed. Interestingly, the New Testament word that is used to speak of the eternal security of the saints is not the word persevere. The New Testament word, if we want to be biblical, is the Greek word tereo, T-E-R-E-O, which means to keep or to guard. Like a sentry would keep a treasure, like a shepherd would guard his sheep from the predators. And that word is translated on three different occasions in the New Testament by the verb to preserve preserve, not to persevere, to preserve. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, now the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved, blameless to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've already quoted Jude verse 1, preserved in Jesus Christ and called, that's tereo, means to keep or to guard. 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul says, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me. To his heavenly kingdom in Christ Jesus. Preservation in the New Testament is a divine grace. It's a gift of God. But perseverance is spoken of as a Christian discipline and duty. It's something you need to do. You need to keep on keeping on. You and I are called to endure, to persevere, to be patient, to hold on and to hold out. But my friends, you have to put forth effort to that. I'm telling you, dear friends, whether or not you persevere... And I want you to, and I want to persevere, yet, my beloved, the good news of the gospel is every elect of God who was redeemed by Jesus on the cross, called by the Holy Spirit, will be preserved or kept in the grace of God until Jesus comes again. You say, Brother Mike, is this really a serious matter? It is. First John 5.16 speaks of a sin unto death, that is, persisting in a sin to the point that your conscience is seared, and you lose again every blessing worth having this side of eternal bliss. The child of God will never lose his eternal life, but he may lose the joy of that salvation, and I've known people that that's happened to. And it could happen to you, and it could happen to me. Second Peter 2.20 speaks of the danger of apostasy for God's children from the knowledge of the truth from the blessings of the gospel church when he says, if after they have escaped the pollutions of this world, 
Now, when a person's baptized, they've come out from the world, they've escaped, they've saved themselves from this untoward generation. Peter says, if after they've escaped the pollutions of this world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the, at the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they've known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them, but it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Very graphic language that speaks of the seriousness of apostasy or backsliding. In the Decian persecution, Decius was the Roman emperor in AD 249 to 251, only two years. He became Roman emperor after he defeated the invading Goths. And Decius wanted to be an emperor like the past emperor Trajan, who in his glory, Rome flourished. So he called himself Trajan Decius. And he wanted to be the restorer of the sacred rights of Rome's past glory. So he decreed that like Trajan before him, that all Christians and all citizens of Rome must demonstrate their loyalty to the empire by offering a sacrifice to the Roman gods and swearing by the genius of the Caesar. And this oblation, if they would burn a pinch of incense before the bust of Caesar and confess Kaiser Ocurios, that Caesar is Lord, and they would swear by the Roman gods, Jupiter and Neptune, if they would do that, they would receive a certificate that showed that they had participated in the governmentally mandated ritual and they could buy and sell because they had a passport or certificate. Under the threat of persecution, some of the Christians refused to participate and were imprisoned, and others were even put to death. Two of those that were put to death were an old man in the city of Alexandria named Metris, who was stoned when he refused to blaspheme the name of Christ. And next, a woman named Quinta, a slave girl was dragged through the streets of the city and then she was stoned when she refused to participate in pagan worship. And then their goods and houses were plundered. Yet while some stood fast in their profession of faith and did not deny Christ, others made sacrifice to the Roman gods and to Caesar and secured their certificates of dedicated citizenship and to make a long story short, the policies of the empire took their toll on the church. One church historian writes, the Christian church practically collapsed in this age. In every city, the story was one of immediate obedience to the emperor's orders. Christians joined their pagan neighbors in a rush to sacrifice to the state. The church historian Eusebius observes that some of the lapsed some of those who had wandered from the faith advanced to the altars more readily and declaring boldly that they had never been Christians at all. Cyprian, the early church father, says immediately at the first words of the threatening foe, the greatest number of the brethren betrayed their faith and were cast down, not by onset of persecution, but they cast themselves down by voluntary lapse. They would swear not only rashly, but even more, they would swear falsely. They would despise those set over them with haughty swelling, that is, their pastors, 
They would speak evil of one another with an envenomed tongue. They would quarrel with one another with an obstinate hatred. He added that not a few of the bishops who ought to furnish both exhortation and an example to others, that is the pastors, despising their divine charge became agents in the secular business. After this lapse or this falling away in 250 AD under the Decian persecution, the church faced this controversy over whether the lapsed could be restored to the faith after they transferred their loyalty from Christ to the emperor. Strict constructionists like this man named Novation denied the restoration of the lapsed, asserting that they had committed an irreconcilable post-baptismal sin. Cyprian and others said that the, if they're truly penitent, they can come back if certain conditions are met. My friends, may I say we may face seasons like that again in the future. If so, let us remember this warning to the backslider. And instead of going back, as the apostle encourages them in this passage, we should go forward, verse 9, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. You know what I call that verse? I call it wise pastoral logic, like a loving father who says to his kids, don't you do anything wrong when you go out with your friends this weekend. And he says, if you do, you could ruin the rest of your life. You could bring shame upon your family. Don't you get involved in drugs or alcohol or immorality. Or don't you fall in with the wrong crowd, son. You told the line. You be wise in your decisions. The father who says that, he warns him. Then he says, now I've said this to you, but I'm persuaded better things of you. I, I know that you're not going to. I have higher hopes for you. I know that you... Know what you believe and who you are and that you're able to take care of yourself. I trust you. That's the way a wise parent does, right? He doesn't just scold and warn, but then he sort of builds up and says, I trust you that you're going to do the right thing. That's what Paul does in this passage. We're persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. He says, brethren, don't go back. Don't retreat. But you go forward. Onward must be our watchword. It's the Christian motto, forward march, onward Christian. So not backward, don't go back, keep moving forward. U.S. Grant was asked in the Civil War, sir, what plans have you made for retreat? Grant's reply was, I've made no plans for going back. I've only made plans for moving forward. May that be your mindset and mine, my friends. Never go back like Lot's wife. Remember her, don't ever return to your former life. Don't ever give up serving Jesus Christ. Don't ever leave the light that God has given you. And if you'll walk in it, he'll give you more light. What a powerful passage. I hope I've made some sense of it this morning. May God add his blessings to the preaching of his word. From every storm.